Hey everyone, this is Dave Cruz from Flyber Labs, a podcast on business and innovation in the Midwest and beyond. Here you'll meet fascinating people and learn about new technologies and practices that will change how you look at life and business. Enjoy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Flyber Labs, and today we're going to talk to hear about the future of reinsurance and insurance in Asia. And to do that, we get to talk to Giorgio Moses, Head of Innovation Management uh, at, in Asia for RGA, the Reinsurance Group of America. So Giorgio focuses on helping make making RGA more innovative in Japan, Korea, China, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and all across Asia. And he has quite a background, including an MBA and PhD, as well as many years with Philips uh, before RGA. So I'm excited to hear more about his background and how Giorgio is making RGA more innovative and we, where reinsurance is headed. So Giorgio, thanks for uh, joining us today. Uh, thank you very much, Dave, for giving us the opportunity to share some of the exciting things we're working on. And I'm very excited to be part of the podcast. I'm a big podcast listener myself as part of my lifelong learning. So I'm very, very excited to be part of the uh, of your podcast. Thank you very much. Hey, and definitely, and thank you. And so, before we talk about what you're doing now, which sounds, you know, I've read a fair amount on what you're doing, it sounds quite interesting. Let's let's hear about how you got to where you are now. Can you tell us about your background? Well, yeah, sure. Um, my background is uh, actually medical informatics. That's uh, what I started to study back in uh, the mid '80s, and medical informatics was actually. Uh, at the intersection of medicine and uh, uh, information and communication technology, and what I really liked about the uh, about the medical informatics was the the importance of data. And uh, being a music lover, I used to have a lot of data, a lot of uh, <laughs> music uh, music uh, files. And as you remember from the '90s, we start to convert them to digital because uh, the eight tracks and uh, and, uh, and all those uh, old media was kind of old. So starting to get into that in my private life and also in my professional life, I started to be involved with data. And I started working with data basically uh, during my master thesis. Uh, that was back in Amsterdam where I had uh, access to the integrated primary care databases. So it was actually um, intensive care data coming from pretty much all the hospitals in Amsterdam. And um, what I uh, what my mission was with that database was to predict mortality, hmm. and I was uh, comparing artificial intelligence approach with statistical approach. And I remember back in those days, the the performance of the AI models were not up to par with the statistical model, but you could see that the performance would increase and AI would become uh, more and more important. And after that, I studied epidemiology. What, what year which was, oh, me, sorry, Joe, what, what year was that? I'm just curious when, when you did that, that research. Um, that was 1999-2000. Okay, all right. And after that, I start, uh, I start with epidemiology. And epidemiology kind of gives me a better frame of uh, looking at data because you're, you're starting with a hypothesis. And then you go and look for data to really, you know, in a scientific way, address that hypothesis. Then it kind of gave me a better framework of thinking about data. And um, subsequently, I did a PhD in pharmacoepidemiology, 
where data play also a very important role. We had access to electronic medical records also in the Netherlands. And that database gave us the opportunity to look at the effectiveness and uh, side effects of, uh, of medication. So that would be like a, a systematic approach of looking at the data, see what kind of drugs people are exposed to for how long, and you would compare the effects of uh, side effects or see whether or not the drug does what it's supposed to do. And um, the interesting thing about science was I really like the idea of working with data, but it was always retrospective. So looking back and reporting what happened in the past. And I wanted to make it an impact, you know, in real life. And that was my switch to the industry where I work at the Philips uh, Dutch company. And at that time, Philips was making a big transition from being an electronics company to become more of a health and well-being company. So I was at the right place at the right time. And I was part of that Philips journey to decentralized care, because uh, now I'm talking about 2005, roughly. And at that time, we were already seeing, you know, the big trends that we're seeing now. For example, people are getting older, they're living longer, and preferably they want to live longer inside their own homes. And that would mean that healthcare would change, because if you look at healthcare, pretty much most healthcare services are consumed inside the hospital. But if you look at the demographic, the changing demographic with elderly people, the, the, the care demand would change because elderly people do not stay in the hospital for the typical diseases they suffer from. Typically, these will be chronic diseases like uh, diabetes. And you, you don't want to keep a person in the hospital with diabetes. You want to treat them pretty much outside the hospital. And that was the mission of the innovation back at that time. They used to call that the decentralization of care. So you take care outside the hospital and move it to wherever the person is, whether it's inside the home or whether it's uh, on the street, because 99% of illnesses is, is treated outside the hospital. So we started to create the technologies that would enable people to do that. And while doing that, and while being part of the big transformation that healthcare was going to the last, last 10 years, I also discovered that the paying mechanism of, of healthcare uh, was not really innovating uh, according to what, what we were seeing in the health and technology space. So I started to develop this interest to learn more about the, the payers, the payers in the ecosystem. And that's how I got in touch with the insurance world. And um, to make a long story short, I was recruited to Philips and joining RGA and still being part of the same ecosystem. And that's also what excites me, you know, being at the intersection of uh, health and well-being, technology, and now with insurance. If you imagine those being three balls at the intersection, the sweet spot, that's the most exciting place to be, uh, if you ask me. So that's how I got here. Well, that's good. What well, Your background's another whole podcast, I think, in itself. Uh, <laughs> but uh, so a couple, a couple questions in your background. One that's super important is what type of music do you like, since you mentioned that you're a music lover? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it, it dates back to my dad being a DJ and having a big collection of old no music from the 70s. And, oh, yes. And I um, kind of uh, uh, took over and, and, you know, having all these LPs and final records, uh, translating them into eight tracks and then onto CDs and DVDs and eventually into MP3. You're kind of playing around with a lot of data. 
And to me, data, it's not just things that fits in an Excel sheet. It could be, it could be a music file because it, it could be a, a, a signal, like an ECG signal. So that kind of helped me to look at data from different points of view. Like data could be flat, data could be, you know, representing a signal and data could be representing a specific con- uh, context of uh, where the data is from. Gotcha. Okay. And so when, when you're at Phillips, uh, you know, you, you were there for quite a while. What, what was one role where you think you probably, and where you learned the most um, while at Phillips on a certain project? I would say at the front desk, front end of the innovation. Because, uh, you know, when you look at innovation, innovation should be meaningful, right? And when people talk about meaningful innovation, we usually start with the unmet need of the end customer. And that's where I learned the most. Uh, and I'll give you a, an example of uh, one one particular aspect of healthcare that excites me is the, the elderly population. Now, if you look at the elderly population, when you grow old, uh, probably it will be with one or two chronic diseases. And typically, you'll have multiple doctors looking at your chronic diseases. So, for example, if you have a heart disease and, and uh, diabetes, the elderly population, you'll have many people prescribing drugs, and there's no reconciliation, there's no care coordination. And what I've learned from that journey is what we call ethnographic research. So the research means that you don't sit behind your desk um, inside an office and just read, but you go out there, you talk to people, you observe, you really go into people's houses. And I've learned a lot from really understanding you know, how people with uh, impairment deal with their diseases, what are their real unmet needs. And it's really about routines, it's about behavior, it's about habits that they need to relearn. But see, just imagine, right, like tomorrow if someone is diagnosed with diabetes, their whole routine will change. Because it would mean that, well, you'll have to take medication, you'll have to learn how to, you know, do some self-medication, you have to uh, focus on your food. If you're a smoker, you'll have to quit smoking. And all of that is really a big burden on the patient. Now, the question to the innovator is, how do you solve that? And typically, you'll do it one step at a time. And the first step is really important to really engage the person and keep them in a, in a chronic disease management program. So it, it, it's not just technology just to build another device and put it there. But you, you'll have to think of, you know, how do you make that technology persuasive? How do you make sure that it becomes part of the daily routine of the, of the customer that you have in mind? And I would say that was the biggest learning for me, the journey of uh, ethnographic research, being out there, really understanding the problem in depth, getting the key insights, and then translating that into you know propositions that will solve the problem in a you know an economic sensible way. And that uh, you mentioned the engagement piece, which uh, hopefully we can get into with some of your projects, maybe at RGA. I think that's a, a big piece of it. And so, la- last question before we get into the RGA is like. Yeah, I want to dive into a little bit more what you just mentioned about kind of the home visits. You know, how um, how did you get better at asking like certain questions? Like, how do you extract like what the information that you needed when you talk to people, you know, the the seniors or the elderly about their health conditions and how they function throughout the day? Um, yeah, how how do you know what questions to ask? 
A very good question. So uh, that being not part of my background necessarily, what really helps is to know how to function in a, in a multidisciplinary team. So back in those days, uh, I used to work with people who really know how to interview, like creating an interview guide, not to go there with a questionnaire and go from question one all the way down, but to really engage someone in a conversation. And um, it is not just the questions and the answer that you get back, but it is also the observations. Um, I'll give you an example. Well, one of the uh, technology we were working on in terms of medication management was an electronic pill dispenser. Uh, you could build a technology that reminds the person to take their medication and um, you could also track whether or not the medication out of the out of the um, medication box, if you will. But once you're out there in the real life, you'll you will discover a couple of things about data. So let's say you have that machine in someone's home. When you go inside the home and really observe, you'll see a lot of interesting things, like for example, People will press the button, take the medication out of the box, and not drink it. But according to the technology, if you just you know monitor it, you will see like ah, patient A took medication right on time, but unfortunately they didn't take it. So what that means is it's not something that you will ask the patient and they'll tell you like everybody takes their medication, of course. But sometimes people just forget, and sometimes it's not in their routine. So they might not take the medication on time. They might skip a dose and take two doses in in noon, so it's a double dose. And that is also part of the medication management. And you will only learn that by being there and observing, trying to understand why people do things. Like, for example, you would ask a, a person who, who may take the medication out of the box and not take it in. Like, so why don't you take the pill? And it'll be like, well... This is, uh, for example, right, a diuretics, and it makes me go to the bathroom quite a lot. And Friday night is my bingo night. And because of that, I do not take it. Right? And these are key insights to make your technology more adaptive to the real life situation. And that is very different from, you know, being in a lab and, and with a lot of smart people that come up with something. Interesting. Okay. All right, so let's get into. I mean, like I said, that's a whole podcast in itself. So, uh, but let's get into what you're doing now. And uh, can you tell us about uh, mm-hmm. a little bit about RGA and uh, you know the, the your products and what you guys do and the, kind of your your role at RGA? Yeah, absolutely. So RGA Reinsurance Group America, uh, one of the biggest uh, reinsurers in the world. And I actually represent RGAX, which is uh, really the innovation engine of RGA. And our mandate is really to reimagine reinsurance, reimagining insurance, and all the aspects of it. And uh, typically, how we go about that is, uh, you know, engage with the rest of the ecosystem around uh, around insurance, uh, because we're anticipating that technology will become more and more important. Technology will influence the way do the you know the regular processes in, in insurance if not really disrupted uh, and we're also looking at the trends in health and well-being uh, looking at people with impairments people who you know in the past may not be able to to get insurance and now we're looking at opportunities to still provide that insurance but it will require certain innovations 
And that is pretty much what uh, what RGAX does. So we're looking at different aspects of the of the insurance value chain, and we're reimagining reimagining it. Uh, of course, with the technology trend and the healthcare trends that we're seeing in the, in the ecosystem. Gotcha. And just for the audience, in case they don't know, and, um, uh, and please improve on this uh, explanation. But reinsurance, essentially, I mean, you guys take the major risk with insurance and you work with carriers like here in the United States, it could be American family or state farm would be the carriers who are the public facing, but you're kind of behind the scenes um, assessing the risk and carrying a lot, a lot of the risk. Is that, uh, would that, is that fair? That is a, that is a fair explanation. And uh, mind you, I'm, I'm also a, a neophyte in the industry and I'm learning as we go. But, uh, one of the explanations I really like is that a reinsurer insures the insurance company. Yes. And what that really means is product development. Uh, it's also about new solutions to address the needs of the of the, uh, of the population. And uh, and what types of insurance do you uh, reinsure? Uh, mostly life and in Asia, a bit of health. Gotcha. And where... Um, and where where are you located? So I'm based in Hong Kong, uh, and Hong Kong is also the regional um, the regional headquarters, if you will. And from Hong Kong, we serve the rest of uh, Asia, from uh, Japan all the way down to Southeast Asia. Okay. And the interesting thing about Asia, uh, you know, it's not a country, right? It's, it's really a huge part of the of, of the planet. Where you have India with one point. Uh, 1.2 billion people and China with 1.3 billion people. So it's a very, very big area. And if you look at the insurance needs, this is a, pretty much a growing market in terms of demand. But the demands are very different. If you look at Japan with the growing population, uh, the needs are more around elderly people. If you look at Southeast Asia, the dynamics um, and the needs are different. These are people that are really coming into the industry, becoming, um, uh, let's say, affluent enough to buy insurance. And uh, these are the mobile first generation, right? So they expect to buy insurance through mobile or finding more information online before they do a purchase. And that's a very different dynamic in, uh, for example, in China, where uh, the need for insurance is slightly different. So it's a very exciting area to look at in terms of the, the needs and uh, what are the things that need to be addressed to uh, really have the, the whole industry growing? So, yeah, let's dive into that a little bit more. So if you take a certain country, I mean, there's probably within a certain country, and, um, and if you can give an example, that'd be even better, like a specific country, but on how you kind of uh, analyze that country. So let's say it's China. You know, there's probably, you know, there's lots of very rich people in the cities and then there's people are poor in the rural areas and in the cities too. But you know, how, how do you work with your carriers to develop products for a, a spectrum of people? Or are you focused more on a certain type of person um, in each country or yeah. Cause it seems like so vast. So how do you, how do you get going and uh, kind of understand the market and then develop products for that market? Well, I'll give an I'll give an example to to answer that question. Right? And 
something that is also a bit of my problem. We're looking at, for example, one popular, one specific segment, which we call the, the sandwich generation. And a sandwich, the person on the sandwich generation is typically someone who has kids and also has parents. And they have a worry about, you know, their parents growing old, uh, but there might be a financial burden because they might not grow old in a very healthy way. And especially in Asia, that's a big deal because uh, the family structure and the culture around it is very different than in the West. So if you look at the sandwich generation again, their challenge is what are the financial products that we can buy to address, you know, the need of uh, making sure that uh, there is long-term care for the elderly and also that the kids are, are covered for any, any insurance that is necessary, whether it's a saving product or not. Now, for the sandwich generation, there's not really a package out there that you can go and buy. And uh, right now, we're in the process of really understanding the unmet needs and what are the types of solutions that we can provide. So that is one aspect of, uh, you know, a segment that we're looking at. And typically, we will not do this alone. We will work with an ecosystem of, uh, of, of uh, the carriers, but also technology providers to enable certain certain services that comes with, uh, with the insurance. Uh, one other uh, innovation that's really interesting where you, you, you kind of see where the future of insuring is heading is uh, uh, products for people with impairment. Um, now, way back in the days, this was an issue for someone with diabetes to buy an insurance product. Uh, but together with carriers, we're working on you know products for impaired life, we call them. So someone having diabetes doesn't have to be a death sentence, especially if you manage the disease well. So you can still sell a, an insurance product for a, a person like that. But at the same time, they would need that additional service to make sure that they manage the risk, the risk of the diabetes. And that is typically not something that RGA would do. So we would look for, for uh, a service provider in the ecosystem and figure out a way to bundle that to create that solution for that particular target segment. Interesting. Um, yes, I, I'm part of the sandwich sandwich generation, so you can uh, interview me after this. But uh, <laughs> I'm out in Asia. But, <laughs> okay. <yeah. laughs> um, so, yeah, I've never heard that before, yeah. but, yeah, I like that. And uh, so with the impairments, I mean, that, that's really interesting. And uh, – I'm sure that's quite meaningful too, right? So you can get provide insurance for somebody who was uninsurable for so many years. Uh, but how do you insure? So if, would you insure someone with diabetes for life insurance? And if you do, how do you do you make sure they're following like a certain regimen or certain program? And if they get off that, then their policy will expire or um, or be terminated. Or how, how does that work? Yes, that's a, this is actually one of the most exciting things, and I, I've seen it in different uh, different parts of, you know, of, of, of the insurance industry, if you will. And the part where I, I started starting was the car industry, right, where you will have a car with a sensor in it, and the sensor kind of uh, measure your driving behavior. And you can imagine that that data can be used for what they call underwriting to to look at your risk. Now, this is continuous data because every day you drive your car, you collect that information and it gives you an idea of your driving behavior. 
And you could imagine that your premium could be adjusted based on your driving behavior of the past month. So it could be, hey, Dave, you've been driving very well last month. You know what? We're going to lower your premium because we have that data. Now, if you take that same architecture of the solution and transpose it to life and health insurance, that would mean that you would need data. You would need to collect data about someone's behavior and assessing that data on a continuous basis to see whether or not the risk is being managed well. And if the risk is managed well, you'll figure out a way to have a financial incentive, whether or not that works for, for the person that's another topic, but let's say a financial incentive to, uh, to basically stimulate the person to adapt to the healthy behavior that is beneficial for their, for their health and also beneficial for the risk management part of the, of the insurance, uh, of the insurance product. So to, to answer the question in a short way, you would need a service provider that you trust and that you, that, that you need to make sure that they're doing what they're supposed to do. And actually, in the, again, in the healthcare space, there's been a lot of innovation around remote health monitoring, persuasive technologies, reminders, medication management applications, et cetera, to help people manage their, their health. And we're seeing also scientifically that there are very good results out there uh, that makes you believe that really, if you put a patient on a disease management program, they can really manage their disease uh, up to the part that the risk is manageable and that it can be bundled in an insurance product. Gotcha. And one last question on that. So from an underwriting perspective, how do you, uh, under, you know, you might underwrite them as a lower risk if they're on this program, but then if they get off this program, there'd be a higher risk. So would you almost have like two tiers of uh, um, premiums or coverage? Or, and maybe you haven't gone that far. <laughs> I'm, just, I, I'm just curious. Well, um, if, if, if you take underwriting as as a as one key activity in insurance, right? What what I found interesting uh, again as a newcomer in the insurance industry is the way they deal with data and assessing a risk. And to me, it feels like in the healthcare world, there was a time where you assess a risk, like from a doctor point of view, right? By looking at cross-sectional data. And cross-sectional data would mean at one point in time, it's kind of like picking a picture and assessing the risk of the person for the rest of their lives. So looking at the blood pressure, yeah. uh, BMI, cholesterol, all of that stuff. But technology has moved on. We, we no longer take a picture of one moment in time, but it becomes like a movie. So you can monitor a person's blood pressure uh, with a specific sampling rate because the technology is so cheap, everybody could have a blood pressure meter inside their homes. So you have a higher sampling rate of the data, meaning that you can really underwrite a person as a movie. So at different point in time, you will have different risks. So you can really manage the risk as the disease progress uh, because you're continuously collecting the data. Yep, that makes sense. So that would be a different way of looking at underwriting. And uh, that is part of also reimagining how underwriting will be in the future. Gotcha. Okay, that makes sense. Yes, and that goes back to your car example of you can continually assess somebody's health and ideally uh, adjust their premiums every month in theory. Yes, okay. I like it. Um, yes. And so uh, and this is more of a taking a step back, but you know, I was curious – you're in a very pretty unique position that you get to work across 
many different countries in Asia. And I, I was curious if, if you see a difference in kind of innovation style or philosophy across countries. Um, I, I know you haven't been doing this for decades, but, you know, in your time there, have you seen a difference across countries? A different in innovation approach. Um, well, um, I'm not sure if there are country-specific innovation approaches because the, the way innovation is approached uh, across the globe, I think it's being standardized with you know uh, uh, by big thinkers like uh, like uh, Reeve and um, uh, you know you name all the gurus, right? You have a, a design thinking or lean startup. I think pretty much across the globe it's kind of like common sense right how you approach innovation like really understanding the problem and work on a solution make sure that it <clears throat> that it addresses the need of the customer and then go about it what would be different in asia if you ask me it would be uh, how the team are, are structured and how we go about innovation I would say if you look at the northern part of Asia, it's more very much compliant and going through through all the steps and very disciplined approach. Um, and uh, I, I guess it's the background and the culture of the of the country that makes people innovate in that way. Now, when you, if you move a little bit down, like China, uh, all the way to Southeast Asia. Uh, as, as you may know, people use the say, well, China copies, um, which I think is a, is a good start where you see something somewhere else and you try to adapt it to your situation. So back in the days, China used to copy, but now understanding their needs, their unique needs in the country, they're not just copying, but also adapting to the needs of the, of the local population. So if you look at specific innovations in China, they'll be very, very different. You'll be like, oh, that looks like Facebook, but it's not really Facebook. Um, and that has to do with the dynamics of how they're, how they're dealing with, uh, with technology. I'll give you a great example. Uh, around six years ago or seven years ago, where I, when I moved to China, I used to live in Shanghai, I had this observation that people will take their phone and instead of holding it the traditional way to speak, they'll be talking to the phone, and after that, they'll be holding it against their head. And after observation, I kind of learned that the keyboard that we use in the West doesn't work for for, for China because they have the characters and the, the keyboard. If you translate, if you kind of transpose it into a Chinese version, it's still not uh, a convenient way to chat. So they kind of come up with chat communication, which was WeChat. So it's almost only FOIP and less less of the of the texting that we used to do in the West. And because of that, their whole social apps are very differently constructed than you would do that in the West. And that really has to do with the dynamics of the of the environment and the unmet needs of the people there specifically. And um, well, one thing I learned from that is it's very difficult to take an innovation from the rest and transpose it to the east and uh, assuming that it will work. It will need a little bit of localization and you will, you will need to engage with the local people to really understand the, the, the deeper needs of the, of, the, of the customers. But in the end, innovation, you know, going from an idea to an invoice, 
is really common sense, and there are different religions out there, but I'm sure all of them leads to the to the same outcome, like moving your idea to an invoice, and people are willing to buy your proposition. And and what type of technologies are you looking at as far as you know, implementing some of these <clears throat> ongoing uh, assessments? You know, whether it's diabetes or other uh, diseases, um, or just, I guess just people's health in general. Um, you know, are you looking at wearables? Are you looking at, yeah, what type of technologies are you looking at? Uh, great question. So in terms of technologies, uh, a couple of things. There are the, the devices, of course, and the devices are becoming much better, more accurate, etc. We're looking at devices that have good connectivity because in the end, it's all data-driven. So we're looking at technology that can provide better data uh, more reliable data. And, uh, you know, the health tech industry pretty much grew up. We used to have wearables that were pretty much just collecting data about steps. But in the near future, you have uh, better wearables that also could do heart rate, that could do continuous glucose monitoring. And that provides the data for the use-based insurance that we just talked about with the car example. So we're pretty much looking at data acquisition technologies to to assess risk. And um, we're also looking at what we call non-traditional data. And by non-traditional data, uh, think of traditional data as the usual data set that uh, an insurance uh, company would collect to assess risk. But now with uh, with non-traditional data would be what the new wearables are really telling us about people's behavior. So think about the physical activity, sleep, uh, continuous glucose, uh, these are new and uh, new uh, data points that we need to include in our assessment. And another part of technology that really excites me is the analytics around it. And analytics could be as simple as you know new prediction models or to, to predicting risk, but also using you know uh, techniques from artificial intelligence to really. Uh, assess that risk or uh, uh, assess that data. And that is a really exciting part of uh, what we're going through right now because um, if you look at data in Asia, for example, it's not always completely digitized. Sometimes it's still paper-based. Um, and sometimes it, it could be in different languages So where we're dealing with all these, uh, all these issues. And you would use artificial intelligence to help to translate that data into something meaningful that you could feed back into 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 the solution. Um, one part that I'm also very excited about is the uh, is uh, the API economy, where you can really connect with other data providers, and you can analyze that data and provide it back to to the to the end customer or the end user in terms of the meaningful results that we create with our analytics, and that makes it more of more of a, a part of an ecosystem. Than just to stand alone. And and how do you think it's going to work? I mean, it's different depending upon the location, but I've always wondered. Like, I can see all of us using a number of devices at home, or or at least when you're sick. You know, like you mentioned, the glucometer, and of course, there's the Fitbit device that can measure heart rate and sleep. And so, who's going to kind of lead that um, charge? So you have like health insurance, you have life insurance, you have like the the providers. Who are going to be interested in that data too? Of course, the, me as an individual care about that as well. Um, how is 
how do you kind of, I've always been curious how that's going to play out and who's going to kind of be the one who gets a lot of that data or gives away the devices or, yeah, does that make sense? It, it does make sense. And um, I've, I've been looking at this from different points of view, right? Like uh, who's the payer and how will the, the service really be deployed? And again, it comes back to ecosystem play. Uh, uh, because these are very complex uh, solutions to, to implement. So you'll have to do it in an ecosystem where multiple companies work together, share, share the necessary information, and having the customer in the middle. So really having the customer, empowering the customer to collect the data and uh, sharing it for their own benefit. I, I think that's the way to go. So there is no good answer right now. This is really at the at the front end of the innovation. Um, and there are some best practices out there. But I'm not sure if we've reached the optimum when it comes to who will collect the data, how the uh, services will be provided, and uh, how the data will be moving across the ecosystem in the benefit of the, the customer in the middle. Gotcha. So you could see life companies working with health companies working with uh, providers and everyone kind of sharing and learning from each other potentially? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Um, I, I, what I've seen in the early beginning is that, for example, a tech company will try to become the service providers. But as soon as they start to think about how to provide the service, they would, they would understand like, well, this is not really our cup of tea. It requires different skills and uh, different knowledge and different capabilities. So it's better to partner with someone who brings that skill to the table instead of trying to build that up yourself. If you think of, for example, a tech company who would want to become an insurance company, that is very, very complicated. You'll have to go to the regulatory bodies, and that is a pretty much a very steep learning curve. And what you see now is that instead of... Uh, people trying to get into the value chain by building that capability, they're partnering with people who already have that capability and that speeds up your, your innovation. Yes, and that's a good lead into my next question is, do you, for a lot of these ideas and technologies, are you looking to partner with external um, companies and technologies or do you, will you develop anything in-house um, around this? Um, yeah, the answer is uh, definitely we're building up an ecosystem, as we call it, an ecosystem of uh, capability that we think we need. And if you look at the skill set of, uh, of reinsurer and insurers, there's a lot of knowledge on risk management, all the actuaries. That, that's really deep knowledge that you cannot get you know, across the ecosystem. But at the same time, when it comes to technology and dealing with data in a different way, the, the artificial intelligence components that will be part of the data ecosystem, these are things that we partner with people that are specialized in that. And we create that synergy to make sure that we know what we bring to the table and they know what they bring to the table. And together we form something that is much better than you know uh, each of us innovating uh, separate from each other. So that uh, symbiosis of uh, of uh, skill really puts us just puts us on the on the edge of uh, innovating quicker. Gotcha. Okay, and we're and we're so we're almost out of time. I got a couple more uh, questions for you. Um, 
one is you know internally how do you decide on your innovation team what to focus on what your priorities are kind of like we talked about at the beginning it seems overwhelming like you have a a lot of different areas like how do you decide to focus on the sandwich generation um, or look into that versus something else Um, yeah how what's your thought process Uh, that's a great question because you know when you're out there in the field there are so many things that you could solve and so many ideas that comes up (laughs) and uh, we do have a systematic way of dealing with that so we have an ideation process where we kind of log the great ideas that are out there but in terms of selecting you know, we work very closely with the, with the key markets, people that are really, you know, standing belly to belly with customers that help us to prioritize what the best business opportunity is. Because in the end, we're not a university to just build demos and <laughs> new cool stuff. We're really addressing the needs of the market. So we're working very closely with, uh, with our business developers, making sure that uh, the problems we're addressing are the problems that are worth solving. And it really helps us to prioritize, but also to deprioritize things that are not going anywhere. Gotcha. Okay. All right. So two more questions more on the the personal side, one of which I forgot to ask at the beginning. is that, So where did you grow up? Grow up? Oh, I grew up in, uh, in the Netherlands, in Amsterdam. I uh, studied at the University of Amsterdam. And after that, moved to Rotterdam. Sounds like a big other city on the other side of the country, but it's like 60 kilometers drive. Uh, so Netherlands is a small country, and that's where I grew up. It's a really high-tech company, a very liberal country, yeah. and it really shaped me to to be to become the person that I am today. Huh. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. I figured that since you know you mentioned University of Amsterdam, but. I wanted to make sure. And the, the other question I had was, uh, what do you uh, like to do in your free time outside of work? Ah, outside of work. Oh, great question. Well, I consider myself a, a nerdy type. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, let, let me put it this way. One of my old professors told me this, and I wish I, I came up with that line. He said, I never worked a day in my life because I do what I like. And... That's kind of what, 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 what applies to me as well. So I'm always on a PC, even with my kids. I know screen time, screen time is a, is a big deal, but I'm, I'm always doing technology related stuff. Uh, uh, one of the things I, 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 I used to have, I still have a robot at home, uh, but we started to build that in China. And my goal was to make it smarter. So put intelligence in the robot. And I'm doing it with my son and my kids, you know. It's actually a Wi-Fi speaker, so you can connect it to a phone. And these are the types of stuff that you know excites me. Working on little technologies at home, uh, reading a lot. I'm a, I'm a big reader, and I listen to a lot of podcasts. Try to limit to, limit it to one hour uh, a day, and uh, that's what I do in my free time. Really consuming information. Uh, you know, playing around with technology, especially with the kids because they they're getting into it. They love it. And that's what keeps me excited. And of course, hanging out with my wife and the kids, browsing <laughs> Asia. Uh, that's also very, very nice. I like to suck in uh, the culture of uh, wherever I, I, I am. You know, I'm, I'm blessed to be uh, living in Asia and I've been living in different parts of the world. So I like to consume that. 
consume the, the energy of the culture. And it helps also in my professional job to connect to people, observing, understanding unmet needs, and translating that back into what you could do for people. Interesting. All right. Well, that's a pretty good, good way to end. Yeah, I think we'd get along. I like doing a lot of the same things, so that's that's cool. Um, but I don't live in Hong Kong. I live in Madison, Wisconsin, which is not nearly as cool. So I, I'm a, I'm a bit jealous. <laughs> someday I'll get to Hong Kong. I've never been there, but, um, so anyways, yeah, Giorgio, I really appreciate you, uh, kind of telling us about the, the future of insurance and reinsurance and where things are headed and, uh, how you're getting there. And, uh, just hearing about your background was really interesting. So thanks for, uh, coming on the show. Oh, Dave, thank you so much. Thank you for your interest in, um, uh, in our, in our innovation. I really appreciate, uh, you reaching out. And I thought it was a very, very good uh, discussion we had. Thank you very much. And all the best of luck with your podcast. I'm a, I'm a listener, so I'll be following you. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I appreciate it. And yep. yes, I wish we could have talked for another hour, but uh, maybe, maybe another time I can check in. But uh, thanks again. And uh, thanks to everyone for listening to another episode of Flyover Labs. As always, I definitely appreciate it. And uh, we'll see you. And uh, hear you next time. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Giorgio.